from Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. This is Medically Necessary. Welcome to Medically Necessary, the official podcast of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff. I'm Chris Honig, joined as always by Dr. Jim Sowitz. Dr. Sowitz, another beautiful day in the medical neighborhood. Indeed, Chris, it really is. You know, it's a little cold out there, but I, either I'm getting used to it or there's, the, you know, there's melt at the end of the tunnel, if you will. So, you know, we'll, we'll get through this. How are you today? You doing good? Well, you know, I guess we can't complain after two winters that, you know, winter forgot to show up. I mean, I bought my snowblower two winters ago, never fired it up until, you know, three weeks ago now. So I, I guess I reserve the right. I reserve the right to complain. Chris. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to point that out. I, I, I do. You know, so, but well, yes, it is uh, nice we're, to we're have four seasons, I guess. It is. It is. As long as they're all summer. <laughs> <laughs> As the calendar keeps moving, we move our way through winter. We start to make our way towards spring. March is colorectal cancer awareness month. And of course, we do have a, a wonderful doctor on our staff who, who coined the, the phrase, uh, was it don't be a dope, get your scope. I did. Yes. That's right. I did. Dr. Nell Maloney Patel. And so I'd like to welcome Dr. Maloney Patel and Dr. Kristen Spencer from Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey to the program today. Want to have a conversation here because obviously Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month is coming up quick. Um, and there has been a lot of research out there recently about the steady rise in early onset colorectal cancer, especially among the black community. And the need, it's not just that it is uh, family history and people who have family histories not getting screened early enough. And obviously, that is a big part of the mission of Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health, our community mission, our goals of getting healthcare out into the community. And this is, is certainly an area that, that we see we need to do more work. So that's exactly right, Chris. There was an analysis done looking at the SEER database in 2019 that showed that there has been an increase in younger people with colorectal cancer. This was certainly more significant in the Black community where the increased risk between ages of 20 and 54 years old for African Americans increased by 11.7% compared with uh, Caucasians increasing by only 7.5%. So while this is a problem for for everyone, and early onset colorectal cancer is an issue that has decreased the recommendations for screening from 50 to 45. In the African American community, it certainly is more significant. As I understand, the, the data, Alpha Americans are some 20% more likely to get colorectal cancer in the first place, mm -hmm. and getting to the criticality of screening, 40% more likely to die of the disease, which is a really a horrible sort of figure when you, when you, when you think about this. Yeah, they're also more common to have cancers on the right side of the colon, which tends to have poor outcomes in general and respond poorly to treatment. I think the, the thing that's really interesting is that it's really not clear whether these differences are due to inherent biologic differences or whether they're due to rates or, or things like rates of uh, access to screening, colonoscopies, and other forms of screening or other issues. And you know, there have been studies that have shown that there is a strong component of access to and utilization of screening. We have shown that there are two factors that are quite predictive of patients undergoing screening, and that's one, having a regular healthcare provider, and then that healthcare provider recommending that the patient be screened. And so that's obviously a, a system-wide issue that we all need to take up, uh, take up the fight for. That being said, the, the disparities are really still persisting after you adjust for these factors. 
And many of these patients, to the point of lowering the screening uh, age, many of these patients are actually presenting before screening would even be recommended to begin. And right. they tend to have more aggressive cancers, even adjusted for time from diagnosis. So I think it's really difficult to have this discussion without questioning race as a social construct. And that may be related to broader things like shared environmental factors, like diet and obesity that might be at play here or biologic differences. I think this was really brought to light when with the, with Chadwick Boseman passing away in the last year, he was only 43 years old. So as Dr. Spencer points out, this is younger than we would recommend for the screening. And he clearly presented with advanced disease when he had a stage three um, disease on presentation. So, so while there's not a positive of a death of a talented young actor, certainly one of the things that we hope is that this is a way to bring attention to this in both African-Americans and specifically in younger African-Americans to not ignore symptoms, to get screened or seen when there are concerns about colorectal cancer and family history or symptomatology or bleeding from the rectum. And it's really, um, where, again, there's been other times when celebrity diseases have brought forward improved screening just because they, they took advantage of, uh, of it. For example, when Katie Couric's husband passed away from colon cancer, she actually had her colonoscopy done live on one of the morning programs, and that dramatically increased the rate of screening for a period of time afterwards. And certainly I'm hopeful that having Chadwick Boseman's death brought forward because of colorectal cancer will increase screening specifically in younger and in African-American patients. And I think we're starting to see some changes in the recommended frequency and age of screening also, if I'm correct. We are, but you know, the, the interesting factor for that is, you know, I know the, the recommended screening guidelines for certain groups have been lowered to the age of 45. Um, and that's certainly an, a very important initial step towards diagnosing younger patients earlier. However, I think the, the one, the issue of access still remains very challenging in this population. It's not clear that lowering the screening age will actually translate to more high-risk patients getting colonoscopies unless access is improved. But it also doesn't address the issue of the point that was made earlier about cases in patients in their 20s and 30s that are on the rise as well. These patients are well below, you know, even the, the most current screening guidelines. I think the, the, another interesting thing that's been a positive is I've noticed that my patients have had more discussions within their family and are learning about family cases of colon cancer they didn't know about before. And that's a huge uh, potential miss, um, particularly in primary care, if we're not recommending screening based on family history. And, and if that's not known about, that's a big problem. And I think as families are discussing the issue more, they're, you know, oh, we had an aunt that had it, or, you know, they're learning more about their family history, which is potentially having big impact on screening. I agree with you. you. And I think that what we just said, this idea that there's both like doing screening colonoscopy, but also doing colonoscopies when there are signs and symptoms of problems and discussing what those signs and symptoms are, both in the medical community, but also among families is really important. You know, you're, you actually create a very challenging problem for the health system, for our health system, health system. First of all, to your point, these may be more difficult tumors to detect and be more aggressive, which is anatomical and genetic. Then you have the education and getting people to be aware that they can occur at an earlier time. Then you have access issues. 
how do you get access to screening? And then you have, you know, and then you have to getting the screening done itself. I mean, we, we have really our work set out to, you know, in front of us here. Absolutely. I will say, though, that there are some really good programs in our state to get people access to colonoscopies. The American Cancer Society started a 80% by 2020 program a couple of years ago, obviously, now that we're in 2021. But calling even our local American Cancer Society, they can help facilitate where, where there are access points for colonoscopies, as well as um, there's a Barnabas number that you can call for colonoscopy screening to get put in with providers. Yes. And that number is 888-724-7123. You can also go to rwjbh.org and there is under cancer colon cancer, there is a screening request form. You can do that. Or again, the number is 888-724-7123. Let me get down to that very basic question. When you say screening, are you talking only about colonoscopies or are you throwing in fit testing or Cologuard, anything else into that? I mean, what, what are you, we, we should be advising the average 30, 35, 40, 45 year old individual. What's your thinking? You know, I think that colonoscopy is still considered the gold standard, but you know, there are many articles that state that the best test is the test that actually gets done. Huh. So I think I you agree. Know, yeah, particularly in the time of COVID, you know, finding ways to get patients into the clinic, into the endoscopy suite um, might be a challenge. So at this point, employing some of these other methods is better than nothing at all. And I think the fit testing in terms of risk stratification is really helpful to find out that, that you do have either, um, there are different kinds of fit testing now. There's the ones that look just for blood in your stool, as well as those that look specifically for some immunomarkers for colon for higher risk lesions. And those help stratify who needs to get in for colonoscopy on a more urgent basis. In terms of colonoscopy, there are really different reasons why we do colonoscopy. So, for example, screening is done in asymptomatic patients that reach a certain age where the global risk or the societal risk or the environmental risk is higher. And so that's where that 45 comes in. Most people that are getting colonoscopies younger than that, so in their 20s or 30s, are getting it because of a reason, and then it becomes more of a diagnostic colonoscopy, where it's because they have a strong family history, they have symptoms themselves. And I think that those patients probably should have a colonoscopy as opposed to some of these other screening methods. But for people that are getting truly just a screening study, I agree with Kristen 100%. It doesn't matter what they get done as long as something gets done and then is acted on it if there are positive tests. Right. And we know that the time from presentation, meaning start of symptoms on to to diagnosis on average is six months, if not more. So, you know, that that suggests that there's an opportunity to employ some of these things much, much earlier before patients are even being diagnosed. Do we know enough to make any real prevention recommendations? I think this is a this is an an area of very active research. There's there's a lot right. looking at uh, genetics in in African American and Black patients with colorectal cancer. Uh, there are certain mutations that are found more commonly in whites that are not seen in Blacks and African Americans. So I think that um, genetic research is is really of strong interest. However. There's a, there's a huge issue with access to that as well. So patients are not getting genetic testing, particularly in the African-American community at such a high rate um, that we might need to really generate robust information on that. And I think there's information or, or studies looking at microbiome and diet and, and exercise and, and all of these factors, but it's, it's uh, really so premature and not sure that there's 
data to suggest um, prevention, whether it be chemo prevention or, or, or lifestyle change in this particular population that, that is um, really robust data at this point. I think you're right that, that some of these things are going to end up being important factors. Like the microbiome, every time that there's more that we look into it, the more important it seems. So it seems to be related not only to the development of cancers, but how well people do after surgery, their ability to heal, their ability to have, and, and even recurrences, I think, are now becoming related to um, some of these, the microbiome issues. So I, I think there's a lot that we don't know, um, although I think that Kristen also speaks to the things that we have discovered where there are probably some genetic and environmental factors that set people up for having a colorectal cancer. Wow, fascinating area with a tremendous amount of multiple different challenges. But, you know, and just, and just for context and for people listening about exactly how many lives we're talking about, we're talking about 18,000 cases a year in people under 50 years old. We're not talking about a rare phenomenon. Um, and in the United States alone, those numbers. So, I mean, this is something that desperately needs to be targeted at all these different levels that, you know, that you have outlined. This is what is, for, for me at least, and for other people, so excited about, so exciting about what we're building with RWG Barnabas. Because, you know, you at CINJ, you know, the med school are going to have access, you know, through Epic and through the, the whole system to like some 6 million uh, patients. Yeah. And you're going to be, you know, and with, and we're going to build up genetic banks and we're going to build up, you know, be able to track them and we're going to build up, you know, so, you know, you have this little state, New Jersey, that we're going to have this gigantic hunk of, you know, and we're going to, so when you, so I would hope within years, a, a sentence like you just made would be, you know, would, would you you'd say, no, no, let's go into the system and punch up the genetic database and stuff that we have, et cetera, you know, how many people we have in the system, et cetera, you know, and you could target that. Right. I mean, that's the real opportunity here of this, of this entire thing we're building, the RWG Barnabas system. It is one giant experimental pool on going to be in one database, you know, and everything and we'll have blood and genetics and tissue and this gigantic group of people. And so you'll be able to answer those kind of questions. At the same time, the system is really interested in getting into, into the communities. Right. Yeah. I'm really interested in being the, you know, the, in understanding and helping. And, you know, Barry, uh, Barry Ostrowski, I see it says again and again and again. And he, he said so many times that, you know, that I really truly believe he believes it, you know, that, I mean, this system will succeed only when the health the state itself is healthier. Right. You know, and that's a very different view of healthcare. Certainly when I was trained and even, even now as how we were, we're still in the response mode. But if you think about it, so that's what's so cool about this. So thank you very much, you know, for the, you taking the time, you know, to talk to us. I mean, we will have you back again. Um, it sounds like the next topic we should probably talk about is the microbiome. So, and that's a whole other area, which I know is a lot of national and also local interest in research. So, yep. uh, you know, that area of medicine that I never heard about in medical school, um, <laughs> except that I understand antibiotics were bad for it. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's probably going to be a big part of all the disease in the future. So thank you very much, both of you, for being here. Jim, don't be a dope. Get your scope. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Nell Maloney Patel, Dr. Kristen Spencer, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So COVID definitely changing a lot of things around the hallways of the hospital, but I guess, you know, maybe Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital becoming a movie set, not anything we really ever planned for. Dr. Leonard uh, Lee, star of A Day in the Life, will be joining us next. I can't we'll wait. Right don't put me on a pedestal. 
I'm a clinical trial patient and some days are hard, but weakness isn't an option. And I have support. My doctors and nurses, my family, my friends. I have cancer, but it can't have me. RWJ Barnabas Health and the Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, partners in the fight against cancer, bringing world-class care close to home for you and those you love. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's beat cancer together. Medically Necessary, the official podcast of the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff. Welcome back to Medically Necessary. Chris Honick here with Dr. Jim Salwitz. And, you know, Dr. Salwitz, it's, it's so great to see the state moving along with getting people vaccinated now up over a million, over 1.2 million vaccine doses administered in the state. About a million people in all have gotten a first dose. It, it seems like we're finally getting there in this long road to get back to the, you know, air quotes normal, since I'm not sure normal will ever be what it once was. I think that's really true, Chris. I think we're spinning up yeah, uh, access, you know, and uh, interest, you know, in standard medical care, if you will. I mean, we never really stopped doing what we do, but now you know, patients are more and more comfortable coming back in. Um, and, you know, the need has always existed. And of course, the system, the hospital continues to grow and expand. You know, so this, I think this coming year is going to be very exciting, you know, as we kind of gradually move away from, you know, COVID as our primary focus, you know, and, and get back to, you know, the, the job of, you know, providing superb tertiary quantity care medicine. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time. And that has been one of the, the interesting parts of this second surge. You know, during the first surge, we were one of the few hospitals in New Jersey that really felt like it never turned off its regular business because we still had the, the cardiac, the stroke, the trauma. We still had, it was a half-half you know, hospital, if you will, between COVID and non-COVID. In the second surge, everybody has been trying to maintain as much normal business as possible, still doing surgery, still having all of those other, t- other non-COVID cases in and managing that care. It's made things more complicated, but it's, it's also helped, I think, in some ways with the staff. You know, the, we've always talked about the fear of that second surge and what it would do emotionally and mentally for the staff having to go through it again. I think having some form of normalcy within the hospital has been very important. Absolutely critically. And now I think the, the uh, burden is on us to explain to people that they can get medical care safely. Um, you know, that uh, it is important to do so and not delay, you know, which I think is a, a part of the reason I think for our guests today. Exactly. I'd like to welcome in our guests right now, Dr. Leonard Lee, Chief of Surgery, both here at the hospital and at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and Zoe Kramer, Manager of Events and Communication for the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Foundation. Thank you both so much for joining us. Dr. Lee, our newest movie star here at Robert Wood Johnson <laughs> University Hospital. We said, you know, things have been keeping busy here. The ORs since about early summer ramped right back up. And we've got to show that thanks to you in your behind the scenes, look a day in the life of a cardiac surgeon. What was it like when the idea for this video was brought to you? What, were, what was your initial reaction to it? So, um, well, well thanks, thanks for the invite. Uh, it's nice to be here. Um, but it was, it was actually Zoe who uh, came up with the idea. And I thought, how interesting. You never know what you're getting yourself into uh, until you're in it, right? So um, 
I, she pitched an amazing idea. Um, so I was all in from the get and she, she's the one who really guided the whole concept. She's awesome. She's also so blushing right now. I can see on the camera. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't come across too well in the podcast, but you know, but you do get this kind of warm glow. You know, so, so this turned out to be a tremendous uh, uh, video. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's available on our link. It's being pushed out to the system, and this shows a what are, you get a real feeling of what it is like to practice, you know, cardiothoracic surgery at this hospital, and a little bit about what people who are not familiar with this environment would feel as they move into it. So this, you, you actually managed this whole project, you know, what was the idea, you know, and then, and how did you move forward to doing that? Yeah, well, of course, you know, first of all, thanks again for having me on. I'm super excited. And uh, Chris, I think you actually forgot um, a title line in Dr. Lee's title. He's now also a influencer. Um, I think he can add that to his email signature now as well. He's definitely on his way to a top influencer. Um, yeah, you know, the, the idea kind of came about, um, you know, how can we in this new world, right? How can we keep our donors and community members engaged in what's going on in the hospital? And I was like, let's bring them into surgery. Okay, wait, no, 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 we can't do that. You know, that's a little crazy. Um, but what we can do is we can bring that experience to life in a six minute video and is exactly what we did. Um, again, you know, we spent the whole day with Dr. Lee. So it, you know, over an eight hour day with him. So this video was really, really, you know, the highlights of it, if you will. Um, and kind of like Dr. Sowett said, anyone who would stop in the hallway and talk to me, I would tell them about this day. It was just unbelievable. You know, Dr. Lee is, is very humble and modest, and I feel like I'm his biggest fan right now. I'm telling everyone about him, telling everyone about our day, how great his team works together. Um, you know, Dr. Lee in times, you know, compared this to kind of an orchestra, right, where he's the conductor and everyone falls into place. Um, and, you know, I was a college athlete, so I like to say it was like a play that was perfectly executed, and you got that goal at the end, right? So... Everyone was on the same page. Everyone knows the role and everyone has, you know, the same, the same end goal. Um, it was just unbelievable. I, I can't say it enough. I had a grin walking out of the hospital that day. I called my dad right away. I was like, you're never going to believe what I did today. And Dr. Lee is so awesome. So <laughs> Dr. Sellis is right. You know, I, I did stop him in the hallway and totally, I think I, I surprised you a little bit of like, listen to this, listen to this video. It's going to be awesome. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, a little summary of it all, I guess you could say. Well, I think what I found so remarkable and important about your response, Zoe, is that uh, the complexity of the work that is done at our hospital, particularly in this case around cardiothoracic surgery, becomes for people in that area. Uh, routines are the bad word but it becomes something we expect to see every day. We expect that degree of teamwork and we expect that degree of collaboration. And frankly, we expect Dr. Lee to be calm and soothing and hold us all together and walk that pace. We expect that, you know, so having someone, first of all, being creating the video so people can see what it is this remarkable thing that is created, but it's also someone such as yourself that just walks into it and goes, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, this is, this is not, you know, just walking next door. This is a remarkable thing that is happening behind the doors and walls of our hospital every day. 
And I thought it was, it, your response was stunning. Of course, the video is just absolutely fabulous. And I think anyone who looks at it, particularly if they haven't had familiarity with this world, but even if they have, you know, is going to say, you know, wow, you know, this is, this, this is a remarkable place. Um, these are remarkable people. Um, and, you know, and of course, you know, reasonable credit is given to Dr. Lee, not only for the work that he is doing in his shows in the video, but on his ability to tie this together with how he perceives it, which is, was not a deviation from how he practices medicine. And how I think many superb clinicians, you know, practice, you know, practice medicine. Len, what was it like having to have people shoot a camera in your face all day? Uh, well, I have to tell you that, um, so, so Jason was our, was our videographer and huge shout out to him. He was great. He was unobtrusive as was Zoe all day. Um, he would occasionally just ask a simple question looking for a sound bite or something like that because this was all completely unrehearsed. It was all off the cuff. It was all extemporaneous. Uh, they showed up in the morning and we just did it. Um, we didn't think about what was going to be said. We didn't really think about what was going to be shown. So, I But I, I will take a little bit of umbrage with that. Um, this was the kind, of, the kind of extemporaneous that comes out of 15 years formal training and another 15 years formal practice you know, out of multiple professionals. It's that kind of extemporaneous. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But they were both extremely unobtrusive and, you know, ev everyone knew they were there, obviously, but they were not in the way in any way. We went about our day the way we would normally go about our day. And I think what comes out is that we have an amazing team of people who work uh, incredibly well together and are truly integrated in what we're doing all day long with the end goal to Zoe's point of uh, a good outcome for the patient. And that's all we care about. And so that, and that's what we're all there for. It's a singular task. Was staff comfortable that suddenly they were on, on TV and they were becoming, you know, sub influencers? Yeah, I, I mean, everyone, everyone knew that this day was happening. So I did, I did tell everybody that this day was happening and um, they, were, they were fairly comfortable. We often had visitors in the operating room uh, because we do hold a lot of courses to teach other surgeons how to do some of the things that we do that they don't do. And um, so they're quite used to having outside people in the room. And I would say that they are all utmost professionals from top to bottom, from beginning to end. So nothing changes about our day by having visitors in the operating room, which is a great thing. And, and you can really see that even from my perspective, like Dr. Lee said, obviously myself and the videographer are non-clinical, right? So I, we probably stick out like a sore thumb, even with our facial expressions. Um, but they, it was just flawless. And, you know, it, it's obviously very evident that they all exactly know what they're doing. And having both of us there, it didn't really seem to phase them at all. Obviously, you know, everyone was extremely polite and, and welcoming when we were there. But when it, was, when it was go time, if you will, it was, you know, as if we weren't there. You must have asked the patients if they, to consent them to be in these videos, even though you really don't see patients particularly in the film you use. What was the response to the patients of knowing, listen, you're going to have heart surgery, and by the way, can we take pictures? So for all, for all patients, um, I, we get consent for uh, observers in the operating room, 
and they also all consent for photography uh, because we do take pictures of parts of the heart for educational purposes and also for documentation purposes. But then uh, we did, uh, Zoe and Zoe's team also did approach every patient uh, separate from those consent forms to be part of this vid video project, which is, I, I guess, a, a little above and beyond what they would normally be consenting to. Fabulous. So what's the plan to you how to use this video? Why, why did we do this in the first place? Uh, as remarkable as it is, what's the thinking behind this kind of production? So I'd like to, to in that answer, I'd like to kind of even jump back to what you said before. Um, you know, obviously, as I've been saying, I'm non-clinical, right? I've been here for three and a half years, though. And before this day in the life video, I knew Dr. Lee, I knew what he did, but you don't truly understand the depth of what he's doing until you're in the surgery. So being able to take that footage of that day and, you know, portray it out to the community and the donors was really what we were looking for. Um, and I think that message got across um, perfectly. So, you know, in, you know, in short, and that answer is, you know, we wanted to bring that full experience of, of how amazing everything was um, to our community and our donors. We also want to show, again, I think this is about New Brunswick campus in general. We also want to show what we can do here. You know, we sort of half jokingly say we're, we're the best kept secret in New Jersey. That, that's not something that we want to perpetuate. We want to get the word out there that we do some seriously world-class things at this campus on all levels and in all specialties. And hopefully this video is just a teaser for other things to come and to highlight other specialties and other areas where we are truly leaders, not only in the state, but in the region and within the country. You know, Len, and I'll add to that. I was, I was thinking when Zoe was just talking, I don't believe that even our own staff understands the complexity, the integration, the diversity um, of the things that we are capable of and actually do in our uh, in our hospital and you know and in the medical school. I mean, whether we're talking about the research that's being done, the kind of teacher you know teaching that we do, or the kind of procedures that you project in in this video and this kind of care, you know, and and that results in people not being always completely sure what the goals are, what's happening, you know, and who we are. So there's a it's a you bring a very interesting point up. There's a real opportunity and need to you know deeply give people if you lack of a better word the zoe experience yeah. <laughs> are you going to no. coin that now <laughs> yeah that's it but i can say that is very you you bring up actually a great point for example we are probably one of the biggest minimally invasive cardiac surgery programs in the Northeast and in the country for what we do and the volume of minimally invasive cases that we do. Our staff don't realize that. They think everyone does this stuff and they think that everyone has two day hospital stays after heart surgery because they got it done minimally invasively. They have no idea that this is not the norm and the norm across the country is actually a full open incision down the middle of the chest for every heart operation 
and that only uh, somewhere between 12 to 15% of the practicing cardiac surgeons in this country do any minimally invasive valve surgery. And we do all of ours that way. Yes, it's, there, there's a real need here to get this story and across multiple specialists. And, you know, I'm thinking, as you're saying, you know, we also do more laser brain ablations than pretty than almost anyone in the United States. We have, a, as you know, a, a thoracic surgeon who's doing <coughs> Alzheimer's research. Um, we are a leading trauma center. You know, I mean, you, know, you just look across the panel. This is a remarkable place. And I think um, you, the two of you raised the opportunity and the awareness through this video of, you know, we have to get that story out. I mean, it's important internally and externally that people understand. Absolutely. The, the Zoe experience. That's where, that's where, that's where, that's where we're, headed, we're headed towards that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Hey, I mean, we couldn't do it without the talent, right? The talent's everything. And that's definitely all uh, Dr. Lee. Um, so, you know, more kudos to, to him as well. Absolutely. And thank you, Len, for taking the time, the patience to do this, because as much as you say, oh, this is just in the course of a day, you know, having people follow you around for eight hours with a camera like this, and you're trying to figure out, you know, OK, when do I get a chance to go get someone to eat, you know, et cetera, you know, is a, is, is a burden. So we do really appreciate it. Well, you know, it was it was actually a lot of fun. And again, um, kudos to Zoe and also to Jason for his editing was tremendous of the video. And that's I think that comes across and that really adds uh, a lot to the video. Thank you to both of you. Dr. Leonard Lee, Zoe Kramer, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. No. As always, you can subscribe to Medically Necessary on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're also on YouTube and, of course, on the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Medical Staff Portal. For Dr. Jim Salwitz. For Chris Honig. Thank you for listening. Medically Necessary, brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Foundation.